Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. About 25 years ago, when Ardell and I were new to the Episcopal Church, we weren't sure whether our two-year-old should receive communion, so we opted for a blessing from the priest for a while. Unfortunately, Alden was a strangely verbal little boy who almost overnight went from mistaking cats for cows to speaking in fully formed paragraphs. I say unfortunately because in that little bitty church, if the Eucharistic minister serves you the wine announcing that it's the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, and then passes by the aforementioned child, everybody in that church will hear when he yells, I want some salvation. Mama, I want some of that salvation. Give me some salvation. (laughs) So we laughed our nonchalant little kids say the darndest things, laughs, which everybody knows is how first-time parents try to mask their horror at the unholy terror they've brought into church. When we got back to our pew, Alden was still feeling pretty ripped off. So Ardell tried to calm him down a little more, and she said, well, it's not really salvation. It's, well, well, I guess it's salvation. I mean, and we kind of left it at that. <laughs> but later, we asked gentle old father Ed Sisk whether a child should receive communion before he understands what he's doing. And Ed said, do you understand it? So today I'm putting a question to you. Whatever your age, do you want some salvation? Is that what you came here looking for today? Even if you're grown up enough to know you should never say such a thing out loud in polite company. And if salvation's what you want, you know what salvation is. The story of Zacchaeus is one of the most memorable in the New Testament. As kids, we used to sing, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Y'all remember that one? But the story ends with Jesus saying, today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. Well, what does it mean that salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus? For a lot of Christians, maybe most Christians, to be saved by Jesus means to avoid eternal punishment in hell after you die. There's nothing in this story to suggest Zacchaeus or Jesus were mostly worried about the destiny of one short tax collector's eternal soul. What the story says is that Zacchaeus seeks out this Jewish prophet Jesus, and then Jesus pauses and says he'll be staying at Zacchaeus' house that day, And the little man jumps down from his perch in the tree and says, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay back four times as much. That's what Jesus is responding to directly when he says, Today, salvation has come to this house. So one biblical answer to the question, What is salvation? seems to be, Generosity to the poor and restitution, reparations actually, for any economic justice we've benefited from. 
It seems faithful by the light of this story. If your little boy starts announcing to the church that he wants some salvation, to assume what he's asking for is for his life to be one of generosity and justice. Alden didn't know what he was asking for, but he didn't know it was wine either, did he? And as Father Ed pointed out so gently, Ardell and I didn't know much more about the mystery of communion than our vociferous two-year-old did. But let's pull back a bit. It can be dangerous to take a verse or a story out of its context in Scripture. So, bear with me, here are the scenes in Luke that lead up to today's Gospel. Last week, we read from the previous chapter where we met a Pharisee who was confident of his goodness, which included, please note, giving away a tenth of his income, but he was smug and self-righteous about it. So Jesus commended to us a humble tax collector. That's right, a tax collector like Zacchaeus. But this one was beating his breast and asking for mercy. Jesus tells us that the one, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Right after that, people are bringing their children to see Jesus. The disciples put them off, but Jesus says, remember... Let the little children come to me, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Huh. Maybe we have something to learn from that child begging so noisily for a sip of salvation. Next, a rich young ruler comes and asks what he must do to be saved. He's kept all the commandments, so Jesus tells him to sell everything he has, give it to the poor, and follow him. The poor man shuffles away, dejected. Jesus said it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. For humans, he says, it's actually impossible, but not for God. Then Jesus tells his disciples about his coming death and resurrection for the third time in the gospel, and for the third time, they have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. From there, they walk on toward Jericho, where they meet a blind beggar who's crying out for mercy. The disciples, true to form, try to shush the blind man, but he just yells louder. He yells like a kid. The chalice has just passed by. And Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And then Jesus and his friends walk on into Jericho, where they meet the little man in the sycamore tree today. So Jesus' project seems to be meeting all sorts of people in all sorts of situations and, and pushing them to enter into the kingdom of God where true salvation is found. Doing so might mean being humble about our failings rather than proud about our virtues. It might mean giving the possessions that possess us to the poor. It might mean having the innocent curiosity of a child. Or it might look like a blind beggar who won't be shut up because he has the faith that he's worthy of being heard, maybe even worthy of being healed. Or it might look like Zacchaeus, when salvation enters his house in the form of generosity and restitution to anyone he'd defrauded. What's conspicuously absent here, and actually almost everywhere else in the New Testament if we actually read it, is Jesus telling people he's saving them from the fires of eternal torment. What he's showing us is how to step forward into the kingdom of God, a realm in which the rules are so utterly different from the kingdoms we build and inhabit. But 
God's kingdom, which really is eternal, which is the deeper, truer nature of things, that kingdom can spring into view in all sorts of ways in our lives, it seems. Like a mustard seed that grows into a tree, or yeast that blows a measure of flour up into a loaf of bread. Salvation means being present to and aware of this kingdom of God when it breaks into this world and into our lives. The problem is we've been conditioned by the conditional kingdoms of this world, not God's. Kingdoms that make us prove our worth and our worthiness. So we might assume that the generosity of Zacchaeus is what saved him. And it's true that the Bible is relentless in saying that if we are not compassionate and generous, demanding justice and mercy for the poor, we're simply lost. We're oblivious to God's presence. But it's not because God is not present. It's that we've been distracted and consumed by all the wrong things. What Jesus teaches over and over is is not watch out or else you'll go to the bad place when you die. What he says is there's a kingdom of God that is within you and right in front of you if you'll only learn to orient yourself in your life towards it, which is to orient your life toward humble sinners and curious children and bold, blind beggars and tax collectors who've decided to be generous and just. You say you want some salvation, Jesus says to each one of us. Well, here's what it looked like in the lives of these people. What might it look like in your life? After that desperate little boy at the communion rail had grown up a bit and gone off to college, he gave me a new translation of the New Testament for Christmas one year. The translator is a brilliant and actually quite conservative Greek Orthodox scholar named David Bentley Hart. He was so slavishly faithful to the original Greek that he preserved grammatical errors and clumsy syntax. But he said the two deepest learnings for him as he translated were the radical rejection of material possessions by the first Christians and the New Testament's insistence that, in the end, all things and all people will be saved. That's right, everyone and every living thing, all of reality in the end, will be saved. I won't take you through Professor Hart's long list of clear and forceful and direct statements of the ultimate salvation of all things, but they're everywhere when you look for them. And they echo his translation of 1 John 2, 2. And he is atonement for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the whole cosmos. Or John 3, 17, which always somehow gets left off the most famous Christian verse in the Bible. For God sent the Son into the cosmos, not that He might condemn the cosmos, but that the cosmos might be saved through Him. This does not mean there's no place for judgment. David Bentley Hart believes that we will all see one day at the end of the age how oblivious we've been to God's kingdom. There's no way for such knowledge to register as anything but judgment on our blindness and self-centeredness. But it will be in the context of seeing that our failure was in comprehending the breadth and depth of God's love and mercy. One way we fail is by centering a few metaphorical images of eternal anguish for sinners while dismissing all the clearly stated biblical hope in, as Dr. Hart puts it, that final horizon of all horizons, 
for even those who've traveled as far from God as it is possible to go through every possible self-imposed hell will at last find themselves in the home to which they are called from everlasting, their hearts purged of every last residue of hatred and pride. Zacchaeus wasn't securing for himself a place in that glorious realm beyond all ages where all things will be restored by his good works. His simple acts of generosity and restitution were how that true and eternal kingdom can still burst into the ordinary, imperfect circumstances of lives like ours right now. And I don't know about you, but I spend too much of my days disheartened, and anxious, and angry. Sometimes feel like I no longer even share the most basic definitions of truth and decency and goodness with so many of my fellow human beings. And I don't see things improving anytime soon. But maybe it's in times like these that I actually need to remember how horribly wrong the world was back in the days of Jesus of Nazareth and Paul of Tarsus and that little tree-climbing tax collector named Zacchaeus. To remember that each of these bore witness to a deeper reality that will ultimately subsume the sinful, broken world in which they lived. One day in Jericho, the salvation of the whole cosmos came to the house of a tax collector named Zacchaeus. I ask you, friends, what might it look like if the salvation of the whole cosmos came to your house or to my house today? If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates, or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.